your first time tuning into Making It Up, we analyze and debate over recent topics in creative culture and try to come to a point as to why this is important or what purpose this serves in sort of continuing the conversation within creative culture. The format for this podcast is a discussion of two topics. Eugene picks one and I pick one from our weekly briefings. And the weekly briefings, if you're not familiar, they're twice a week newsletters we send out and we try to take a more analytical approach and sort of combine news topics that in many ways are a little bit beyond the superficial and they have sort of an underlying reason as to why they got us interested. Before we kick things off, usually what we do is we just run in and update each other. I'm currently in Cannes. Charisse is back in Hong Kong. So let's get to it. How's it going in your end of the world? Good. What's I'm, the weather like? I'm in France right now. I'm in Cannes. So is there anything surprising about the lion's that you didn't expect? No. So you remember, it's almost a year to the date. I remember I was in LA and we we did a podcast that talked about the Cannes Lions. And for those unfamiliar, it's sort of this massive event that surrounds the world of advertising yep. and celebrating good commercials. Yeah. Or good advertising. Best- it doesn't have to just be like, it's not just TV commercials. Sorry. You're right. You're right. My whole takeaway was that and when, when they say that it's one of the most expensive events in the world, I can totally see it. It's just a lot of lavish bullshit. It's like a bunch of yachts. And it's- Did you okay, say let me, yachts? Let me try to break- Yachts? Yachts. Let me- Yachts. Yachts. Okay. Yachts. Yachts. Okay. Whatever. Um, so when I try to break it down systematically or just break it down into its component parts, it's- Uh, The beach area, which is a bunch of like these massive, almost like beach compounds. I don't even know that's the right word to use, but you'll have like brands take over a section of the beach. And it's as though you have like a mini area within that's all ticketed. I actually didn't really go in because I didn't buy a ticket. Tickets are like three grand. Mm -hmm. I wasn't for a second going to go there. Uh, And then you have the yachts, which are maybe like a five or 10 minute walk away. Mm -hmm. And they're just basically yachts that are parked side by side by side and every yacht represents a different company. So it might be like a Wall Street Journal yacht. It might be, I don't know, some crypto yacht. So it's just lined up like that. And it's kind of weird because it's as though you had 20 motorhomes lined up and everyone's partying the motorhome, although it's sort of a different vehicle or a vessel. Do you go on to these yachts? I'm confused. Yeah, 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 yeah. You go on, it's like basically a party side by side by side, but different parties. That's weird. It is, it is weird. It kind of reminds me a bit like Vegas or Miami mm. in a way. And then on, on top of that, like it's just a lot of people. Um, I don't know. It's not my vibe, to be honest. To rewind a little bit and give you context as to why I'm here. There's this event going on or that, would, that was going on Monday, Tuesday. That was part of the DFC, which is this new initiative that's... Cl- basically the Digital Futures Council. So the Digital Futures Council is associated with, and you have to follow this sort of linkage here. The DFC is part of Media Protocol, which is this upcoming token project that TLDR helped incubate. Now what's TLDR and what's Media Protocol? I'll I'll further break that down. (laughs) Um, So Media Protocol is a token project that is hoping to create uh, a more optimal way of having publishers, brands slash advertisers and consumers um, interact with content. So whether it's 
a consumer being rewarded for consuming certain types of content, whether it's a branded advertorial or just simply like interacting with content, whether it's a brand who has a more optimal way of of advertising on a publication, whether it's a publication having an opportunity to make money. Like these are all different ways that they can all interact together through these sort of like smart links. Um, And the TLDR is something that I'm a partner within, which is an advisory and investment firm that surrounds crypto projects. I hope that was clear enough. I mean, yeah. You know what? This is like a good segue into something else too, because I was always thinking about this because for the most part, my career is not not at all defined by any of the stuff I just talked about. Maybe media, right? And I kept thinking like in these sort of nascent, semi-skeptical industries, skeptical in the sense that some people have skepticism around them, right? How do you find a way to integrate that into um, your daily conversations without being like, oh, this dude's like kind of scammy. I mean, I have a take on it, but I would like to hear what your thought on it is. I don't know. You kind of blindsided me because I, I mean, I was going to obviously ask you about how your trip was going, but I didn't really anticipate it going down this deep, thoughtful route. Do you know who you're talking to? Well, you know, our intro doesn't tend to be deep. Our, okay, you're doesn't right. matter. We can keep going. Um, I have actually been thinking about what you're doing as in <laughs> why you are, you have been investing greater amounts of time and energy into something that I honestly thought was going to be a phase for you. Not to like think yeah. of you as a child or anything, but like when crypto kind of blew up, everyone sort of went through this phase of being very interested in the blockchain and the possibilities. And I I guess part of me, not to be like dismissive of you, but thought like this was something you were temporarily interested in, like nootropics, you know, to that degree. So I don't, um, I don't know. I haven't really resolved what I think you're doing. Like besides something that you enjoy. I I guess what's interesting in the grand scheme of things is that I've I've kind of seen this interesting link that's being drawn. It's like everything I do, and it's it's a challenge to be able to, to have to do all this shit, all this stuff, right? Like basically have two full time jobs, but then also recognize that they can both have a lot of play off one another. So what I mean by that is I think the current crypto world, and I don't want to like I'll probably after I make this point, we can move on to something else, but. I think when you look at the crypto world, it's still inherently a very B2B sort of environment where you have people that are really interacting as businesses and there is no B2C component yet. And I think that's a byproduct of basically not being ready. Like the protocols, everything's not ready yet, which is fine. But I also think that what's interesting is that making is inherently like a consumer product, right? So I think at some point in time, these two avenues can can intersect, whether it's on a brand level, whatever it may be. So I think that I've always found it interesting to be sort of at the at the forefront or at the 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 front of the line of something. Not because it I need it, but just so much because it's interesting to help define something new, whether it was like streetwear publishing, whether it's now this. So I mean I'm not the earliest by any means, but I think that there's still a lot of 
excitement and there's a lot of value that can be brought through previous experiences. So I think that's why like through it all, like that's kind of what's interesting to me and knowing that I can also provide almost like a, a brand outlet for Macon within a space that at, in many ways are, is a lot easier to, for people to understand. So what that means is that like, what is storytelling? What is marketing and media? Like when you have something tangible, I think it definitely strengthens your credibility and your position within it all. I actually see, cause you talk about this quite a lot. I see how you being in that world is beneficial to them because you provide a different background and perspective that does not exist so much in that world. Um, I don't yet see how what you are doing with TLDR and crypto comes back to affect Macon in a way that wouldn't be affecting us if you weren't involved. The one thing that I've learned a lot is just being around more business-focused people. Mm -hmm. And I've always admitted this is I'm not a very savvy business person on the basis that like on that spectrum of being more creatively orientated and more structured and business orientated, I'm probably in the middle, but closer to the creative side. Yeah. Right? Like how I think. But I also think it's interesting to be subjected to these different, more business-orientated points of view. But then also on top of that, what I have found is that your access to capital now has changed drastically, if that makes sense. Like, I think if you're continually just operating in a space that's predominantly predominantly around people that are more of a kind of a creative lens, you, your access to capital is generally more limited. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's, well, you know, and I think access to capital might might mean a lot of things, might suggest a lot of things. It's like, oh, is making trying to raise money is X, Y, Z. But I think that the fact that you're around these types of people also are going to help enable you and help you either learn and or open other doors. So I think that's also important because if you bring this up, there's probably like an internal reservation of like, oh, Eugene doesn't care about what we're doing here now. Yes, we are the, Which, we're the jilted lover. No, wait, we're the wife and TLDR is a lover. Did I get that yeah. right? That's the metaphor. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's valuable. I, you would feel the same way for me or Nate or Elf or whoever, that it's valuable to have intersectional experiences because it comes back. It, it feeds back into your work. It, even if yeah. even if we can't trace a direct line, the fact that you are spending time with people who think very differently and who have you know, resources of different kinds or more assets that will affect how you perceive what we do here. I think that's the way I've been looking at it. And I, uh, although I do feel there needs to be some proof points for it to be valid. You know what I mean? Like if, if in like a year's time, there's still no like discernible kickback or value added to making, then what does that mean? Like, I think there's a lot of things that, that I'm, I am always very cognizant of. Whether it's like seeing the full picture, I'm trying to, I would say. Well, I mean, it is possible. Uh, I don't know, because obviously you're a founder, so you're different. But it is possible that you fall in love with something else that is not directly making, right? Like that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, it's just like if, if the, tomorrow I decided I want to be a sports agent, or something because I love football slash soccer. Yeah. Right. Like I think that's there's a lot of things there, which I think is also important to acknowledge. Yeah. 
right? Don't worry, guys. I'm in it for the long run. <laughs> all right. Enough about all this talk. What do you have going on over there in Hong Kong? Our good friends Takuma and Sarah are in Hong Kong. Uh, you just happened, you and Nicole happened to miss them. They're here with Sour, who are doing a pop up with Yardbird. And I thought it was coincidental to mention this, I'm not just trying to talk about our personal lives, because we published the Yardbird story yesterday um, yep. about the book with Matt Abergel's, um answers to like how he decided he wanted to do a book and how that's different from like being a chef and a restaurant owner. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well because while I was there last night, watching Sour kind of operate, I was thinking about food and drink is a very natural meeting place, like a very easy point for people to gather. You know what I was thinking on that point? Food is kind of like an equalizer in a way because we all need to eat. You know, it was just like, well, there's different types of different levels, but like we could all literally subsist off the same food. Yeah, and one specific reason I was thinking of this is because the, so the Sour founder, his name is, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. It's Da, D-A-R, um, and he doesn't really speak English, but he was like working behind the counter with the Yardbird stuff, but they were communicating. It's just that I don't even know how, like they didn't need actual words or they didn't need as many because they speak the same language of, making drinks of bartending. It's always interesting to see that. Like I think there's certain things maybe need a, a certain little bit of nuance to like explain properly, but you're right. Like, you know, that's why I think their kitchens can be so multicultural because there's a, a common thread there. Kind of like music, food, music, sport. I think these are kind of these hidden languages. Maybe not hidden languages, there's these unspoken languages. Yeah, yeah. They're common languages rather. Yeah. Common languages. Also, I wanted to mention to you that I did listen to the entire conversation you had with Cleon Gray and Joshua Kissy, the yes. audio story that we put up on Tuesday this week. Yeah, what did you think of it? It was good. It was really good. I'm, I have to confess that I I had listened to parts of it already before it went up um, to review it and check the text. But I was incentivized to listen to the whole thing because one of our um, regular listeners, Emerlyn, she posted it and I was like, huh, there must be something in here. <laughs> so I went back and listened to the whole thing. What did she say about it? Oh, she just said, I forget. She like posted, a lot of people do this and I don't know if they do this with other podcasts, but they just took a screenshot of like the, her podcast app. Oh, listening, yeah. Listening yeah, yeah. and something like- Oh, so it was like, on stories. Yeah, so it was on stories. So it's like a screen cap and then like love this one or something short like that. I'm glad you enjoyed it because before we were talking about it, I was like trying to sell you guys on it because I think some of you guys were like, oh, is this strong enough to be a, a like a second story? And I was like, yeah. Well, obviously I was there, so it's different, but- I think the, um, the confusion was that we actually mostly do profiles and so often that's how my mind operates is to think about like the individual personalities that we're talking about. But this story that we put out is actually about um, like a community at large. And it's not like, yes, Cleon Gray and Joshua Kissy are both very eloquent in what they're expressing, but it's not just about their individual story. It's about yeah. something that a lot of people have to go through and something that they're seeing around them. Another reason yeah. I liked it is because it's not, it, it is 
a deep, like it's an intelligent conversation, but it wasn't so serious. Like it's not somber the way some of ours can yeah. be. It was more- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that's, that's the thing I think that I would came away really invigorated and inspired by that whole conversation because in a time when everything feels so dystopian and negative, like here is a segment and I, I use segment not in sort of like a, a divisive way, right? It's more like, you know, Josh and myself know each other, but we're not necessarily like homies in the sense like we're hanging out all the time. Yeah. You know, there's like kind of a mutual respect. So like, it's interesting to see how his segment, I'll use it again, it are, are sort of looking at things. Cause I, I really feel as though there's that hater mentality that is a byproduct of when you get older that I think people just need to check themselves, mm-hmm. which I think really, if you, if you break it down, you kind of understand, I think it's always important to understand why that exists. So yeah, I mean, yeah. this is, we probably should have explained a little bit why, what the premise of the conversation is. Like maybe you can sum it up, what, what, what it means in your eyes. So Joshua Kissy is one of the co-founders of Tonal, which is this inclusive stock photography brand. And when you spoke with Kissy, his friend Cleon Gray was also in the room. And then you wound up having this conversation with both of them about how it used to be so much more difficult for creatives of color to have the resources to learn, to acquire creative skills and then break into the industry. But now because things are much more accessible and affordable to some degree, then people are able to enter the industry at whatever age, at young ages and without the, without going through all of these like qualifications people used to think were necessary in order to be considered a creative director or an art director. Which is interesting because it also parallels the conversation we're going to have today. Yeah. Do you want to go into your subject for this week? For sure. Let's get into it. This is a good point for me to segue into. So my topic today pertains to the appointment of Jay-Z as the new creative director of basketball at Puma. Previously, a lot of people were saying, oh, he's the president of basketball at Puma, but apparently Puma came out and clarified that he's the creative director. To give you a bit of context, it was announced by Adam Petrick, global director of marketing and brand for Puma. This remarks the 20th anniversary of Puma's previous involvement in basketball. And one of the one of the bigger announcements 20 years ago was signing Vince Carter, who actually only stuck around for two years. So with Jay-Z serving as the creative director, he's taking on a role that in many ways can play off the strengths of his other business, Rock Nation Sports. While they say that Puma won't really have a direct sort of effect on who gets signed to Puma, I think it'll be a really interesting sort of play to see what happens. I mean, there's a lot of invisible forces at play there. You know, it's kind of like, hey, like, I'm not the one signing that this person's coming on board, but let me highly recommend this person. Yeah. Right? And Puma made uh, some big moves recently. Um, to be honest, I don't really know the pedigree of these two players, but they signed wait DeAndre a, Ayton. Wait a second. What? What is Rock Nation Sports? Oh, Rock Nation Sports is kind of a sub company of Rock Nation. Rock Nation Sports is based around sports agency. But is it signing athletes to produce other things? No, no, no. It's more like like they represent like Jerome Boateng of the German national soccer team, uh, Willie Cauley-Stein and Kevin Durant, like that type of agency. Like I'm your sports agent. Oh, okay. Sorry. I got it. I got yeah. it. I got it. I was confused yeah, there for yeah. a second. Yeah. Thank so you. So here's a quote by um, 
as I mentioned, Adam Petrick, who's the uh, global director of marketing and brand. We're making a serious statement about the entry of the category that we want to be a performance brand, but then also very culturally focused. It's clear that we're looking at basketball through the lens of culture and thinking about the fashion of basketball, the music of basketball, all the aspects of culture around basketball as much as the on-court presence we will have. And as I mentioned, they signed two projected first-round picks this past week, DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley III. Okay, honestly, this is like even more interesting to me than, okay, Yes, it is interesting to me that they signed Jay-Z as creative director of Puma Basketball. But they didn't just sign first round picks. DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley are projected picks one and two. What's crazy? Okay. Is well, that not they, pretty they, big? Know, I think that's pretty big. I mean, I guess that is big now that you've contextualized it. That just kind of showed my my lack of planning. Thanks, Sharice. Like widely but, no. considered to be most likely numbers one and two. We could still be wrong because the draft doesn't happen yet, but... Um, I mean, that shows definitely, like that shows a lot of investment from Puma. That communicates more investment in basketball than the fact that they signed Jay-Z. Do you know what I mean? Like knowing who in this round, like in this draft, they should be signing and keeping an eye on like that situation and having these talks happen beforehand shows like, um, what's the word? Like research. Beyond that, what my personal takeaway from it is that it's kind of a continuation of Puma's goal of bringing in underqualified but big celebrity names into the picture. So whether it's Rihanna, whether it's Jay-Z, like honestly, a creative director at its core, these are not super transferable skills in my opinion. Like I think there's a lot of things that can make you a creative person, but I think being a producer, being a rapper, like there's a lot of things in the sort of create creative director wheelhouse that you need to have that needs to be under your belt. And if you don't have it, then like- What kind of things I though? Mean, what kind of things are you talking about? I think there's a lot of things that come into the mix that comes with the ability to secure talent to fill certain roles, which arguably like, how do I put this? Is Jay-Z the one that has a direct sort of inroad with the people that he wants to work with? Or is it like, hey, assistant, go and like, find this person for me. Maybe, I mean, maybe I, I have my perception of a creative director, but I look at the way that people are doing things and it's like a very strong relationship with the with the people and the team that you want to create. You saw not you saw the news ahead. about Everything is Love, right? The joint studio album by Beyonce and Jay-Z that came out. I heard about it. I didn't listen to it though. Okay, you don't have to listen to it, but did you, you don't even have to have watched the video if you read the news about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's widely considered, okay, regardless of what you think of the music or if you enjoy it, a lot of people consider the videos that were produced for that album very creative and artistic and, you know, worth paying attention to, like not fluff. You know what I mean? So that is a kind of proof of being able to be a creative director. Well, let me give you one second. I, I'm searching this right now. Have you heard of the name Todd Turso? That's Beyonce's creative director. Oh. So you know what I'm trying to get at? Like, I'm not, I don't doubt they can do and create great work. I, it, this is accurate as of October 15th. My point is that like, I think that it's not that Jay-Z doesn't have a role, but I think it's 
false to give him this sort of creative director role. Maybe it's because it's as value, but I, I don't for a second think that your role as a creative director is something you can do for fun on the side in between all these other things. Like it's a, it's a real dedication. I guess that is probably a bad argument in itself. What I think is more important is that that element of creative direction that is bestowed upon him, I feel as though that that itself needs a lot more qualification than but what qualification come from. What I would want to see at a creative director is somebody that has a full-fledged understanding, especially at a creative director level, a full-fledged understanding of the thing he's taking on, which is not just music and basketball. It's also the world of footwear, right? There's that. There's ability to, in terms of defining direction, I think a lot of it comes down to also an awareness of all the moving parts, which I don't have that much confidence in. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Like the ability to, to understand where, where the musical side, okay, I'll give them that basketball, fashion, and then the the world of footwear. All those things intertwine. But I think if you, are you looking to get down into more like hard skills? I don't know. That's like what that, I interpret you saying qualifications as meaning. But you're, you're saying that you don't, you think he lacks the knowledge. I think he lacks the knowledge and I think he lacks, because I don't think that you can just immediately pour yourself over into this capacity as the overall creative director of a of a brand of this scale. And I think that, that that to me is like the thing that, I don't think it's, it doesn't have a role, but like to be a creative director, what does that mean? That means set the tone, set the aesthetic, set the vision, set all these things. And maybe maybe he does have that capability. I don't know, like I'm trying to, I, I think you've actually raised a good point because I'm trying to like fully distill what makes me feel uncomfortable beyond the fact that he's never really done it before. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that I think that's where you're trying to, to, to pin me on. I think that's a valid sort of like argument to bring Well, on. I just don't because think, I disagree that he's unqualified. Like for me, I, th- I personally feel as though it's a title that has more merit versus what the actual capabilities and things he's going to do entail. But well, I guess but then, we'll never But really then know. what you're arguing about is not whether Jay-Z is qualified for this position, but you disagree with giving the title of creative director, which kind of just doesn't sound like you either, to be so attached to what a title means. Well, I just feel like at the top, at the top of the very pyramid is like, I almost feel as though that element, well, you know what? Two things, I guess we're, one, first and foremost was misidentifying him as a president and now he's sort of the creative director. Like, I, I, you're right. The titles actually mean a lot less. But I guess what I'm what I'm curious to know is that Jay-Z beyond the celebrity name, would you well qualified for this job? That's the thing I guess I'm trying, I think I'm looking almost from the reverse of it. Like if Jay-Z was Sean Carter and he was a guy on LinkedIn, um, like, I guess, what what is that sort of translation but, of skills? Yeah, I, okay, first of all, I don't think you can just strip Jay-Z of celebrity and consider him as a person separate from that. That's very difficult to do. Like, don't, I don't know how to imagine that. And then- You're right, you're right. I think you're catching me on like, on some, some weak ass arguments. I know, I mean, I accept that you feel uncomfortable about it, but I think you need to be more- just direct about, I mean, you have been, you basically find that he is 
unqualified, but unqualified I feel and like- And also look at the traditional, like what are all the other sort of creative direction things that have been bestowed upon celebrities and how many of those have panned out? Like, do you remember when, who, who ended up being the Blackberry creative director? Was it like Jessica Alba or something? I don't remember. But Rihanna worked out really well for Puma. Yeah, Rihanna. But then there's also talks that Rihanna didn't actually design. But it doesn't any. matter, really? Sorry, um, Alicia Keys was BlackBerry's creative director. Does it, does it matter so much that Rihanna, the individual, did not sit down in front of Photoshop and make an advertising campaign? Like, that's not what her job is anyway, right? I guess I'm trying to, like, look at all my experiences and everything I've heard in the past of like how these things operate. And I, I almost feel as though the, this whole role of creative director is, there's a lot of skepticism I hold within that because I feel as though there's a lot of people that have this army of individuals underneath them that are in reality sort of representative of it. Like it's almost as though creative director is not the actual skill at hand. It's the ability to activate a force of creatives. And I don't feel like that in itself is necessarily the, it, it doesn't resonate with me. Do you know what I mean? I think there's like a purity within within the role and the title that I think has been, I don't compromised in the right word, but it's been pushed to a certain way. And I think that's what I feel the most uncomfortable with is that like, you know, in many ways it's like, it's as though the, the brand name itself has served as just a unifier in a way of like bringing together actual creatives to use it as a platform versus like the individual itself. Does that, does that make sense to you? I think you make sense, but I think I disagree on some points. I still think that you are mainly uncomfortable with a title with the words creative director being assigned to Jay-Z, which I find is unlike you. And it's also interesting in light of the Cleon Gray kissy story because they explicitly oh, yeah, totally. say it's okay for a 16 year old kid to write, hey, I'm an art director because it's about, nowadays they feel like you can say what you are and then eventually become that. It, but it, it, it's not that you have to do, right? Like their whole argument is that you don't have to do anything to earn a title. So I just am not as hung up on words as you are, it feels like. And then I think there is value in Puma signing a single individual as opposed to saying, oh, we've brought on this agency. Like I can see why yeah. you would do that. You, you need that yeah. power of a celebrity name. And it's a lot easier to focus on an individual than to sign an agency whose name is likely to be, you know, common to very few people. I don't know. I, you know what it is? I'm trying to identify like how, what, why, what it is about this that I feel uncomfortable about. Cause it's, it, it almost feels in a similar vein of whether it's Alicia Keys being Blackberry's creative director, whether it's Jay-Z being the owner of the New York Nets, but having like 0.25% or whatever, something marginal. Like these are things that I feel just are overly promotional. And I think that's the part of me that feels as though there's a little bit of instant, it's, it doesn't feel sincere. On whose right? part? And I think, I think it just feels as though it's Puma as a brand. Like for me, if, if I looked at what, uh, what role Jay-Z plays, I almost feel as though 
I almost feel like Jay-Z would be like the head of talent management. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that feels like a much more like, much more authentic role than creative director. Like, I, I don't know. And also I look at like what Jay-Z's done beyond the music. Like I've never really seen him as a personality that's uh, like intrinsically tied to a lot of these things that are that they're promoting, right? He was like, pretty heavy really... when he was more involved with the Nets. He was pretty invested in the redesign of the Nets apparel and merchandise and logo and of the Barclays Center as well. But that's just not as flashy news. And I just think that you're, I just feel differently about the words creative director because I at no point think that that means he's sitting down and like, do you know what I mean? I know that he's not ever touching a computer and pushing pixels or doing an actual, doing the kind of work that you and I do, but I just don't, like, I think creative director in this sense means something different than when you say like, you're the creative director of Macon. Like, I know that the job role is different. Got it. So I think it's like, maybe I'm too narrow-sided in the way that I've kind of positioned as such. I mean, you, you are entitled know, like, to think that it feels insincere yeah. and you have discomfort with it. That's fine. Jay-Z's role feels head of talent management and then him having the ability. And while they say, you know, Rock Nation and Puma, like, will be kind of separated. To me, that feels like the most authentic route for like Jay-Z is like, hey, you know what? Um... I have a wealth of new talent coming up through both soccer, basketball, et cetera. Let's, let's get these guys on board because they're a good look. Not because I'm going to drive um, everything from the marketing, the aesthetics, everything under one roof. I might just, I might also just basketball. be arguing in order to ar or argue against you because I didn't really feel very strongly about this item of news one way or the other. But I also <laughs> feel like Jay-Z should be allowed Jay-Z and other celebrities should be allowed to do other things besides whatever their main thing was that got them famous, whether it's music or acting or fashion, because he's actually 48. That's not that old. Maybe he wants to spend the next 20 years doing this, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't imagine that he is going to be singing for the next, okay, maybe he does, <laughs> but I still don't really imagine him singing for the next 20 years. And producing yeah, albums. I so I, if he has I, the opportunity think, to move yeah. into another sphere, yes, maybe you're skeptical, right? Like you're skeptical of what his role actually is. And you could be right. Six months down the line, maybe they change their mind. But also maybe he sticks to this and then he starts his own footwear brand. Who knows, right? Like that could be where this is headed. Like, I think I just have a very bad taste in my mouth from celebrity creative directors. And I just feel like Puma, for the most part, has really doubled down on this strategy. Yeah. You know, like, um, yeah, like you look at, I think Rihanna has sort of like, has pushed the company in a certain way. Like, who's the other one? Like Selena Gomez is a Puma endorsed um, person too or someone? Yeah, I, I can understand I, what you mean that as a brand... Puma has leaned into this strategy of bringing yeah, on celebrities. Like it, it's it's also like Reebok and Swiss Beats. Like I don't, I like I think Reebok is doing really. Oh, interesting it's Kylie stuff Jenner. Now. Well, no, there's another one too. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, but anyways, that's my like. I just feel it's such like a. I would like to see brands 
build real culture rather than acquire culture. Mm. Maybe that is kind of my, my biggest concern, actually. I like that statement a lot more than anything else you said. Yeah, I, I think I think you did a good job of just like calling me on, on a particular bit of bullshit. Like I th- I think I just had trouble elucidating, like providing context of what I felt uncomfortable because it was just like this swirling sort of like soup of ideas. So you're welcome. But um, it was it was Selena Gomez who so Selena Gomez, Kylie Jenner, um, Rihanna, Jay Z. Like it to me feels a little bit contrived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get what you're saying. You can say it again. It's like, you would rather see brands build culture than acquire culture. That's a good place to summarize this argument. You're next. What's up? I'm actually pretty excited about this one. So we shared it in yesterday's briefing. This spin-off project site started by Kickstarter called Quickstarter. And this is based off of this idea first came up by a product designer in France called Oscar. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Lermit. Oscar Lermit. I'm going to just go with that. So he came up with this quick starter model in order to encourage designers to learn from small projects as much as large ones. Because I think one sort of thing people perceive of Kickstarter is that it's a very long dragged out process, you know, from when you sponsor a project to when it actually gets made takes a lot of time. And it's very large scale and a lot of complications can happen. So that's why I'm a big fan of Oscar's idea, um, which is that these projects should follow nine different rules. And I'll just name some of them. They have to be planned in under three months. The campaign is under 20 days. The funding goal has to be under $1,000. So it's all these limitations that make sure they're small scale. Right. And it's small scale on several ends, like, oh, the designer should not spend too much time and the consumers shouldn't be spending too much money. So it's neither like a get rich quick thing or a way to like suck, um, suck energy out of the designer. Some example projects I liked from this is, you know, one is a zine, which is very easy to understand, just like sponsoring a zine. One is this idea of a lazy postcard. It's very simple items, mostly products and publications. I think the reason that it appeals to me is because in my own practice as a designer, I have found that big projects that take maybe half a year or more can be very paralyzing and you get really depressed waiting through it. So I'm curious, like in terms of that, what does that mean for the overall sort of... um quality of the product being produced does that even matter or is it like does it force you to kind of go down a certain path where the constraints are in themselves extremely interesting and creative Mm, i think in terms of quality it means that if it's a final product it's probably small and using cheaper materials but that doesn't necessarily have to mean that they're bad you know like it's just that you know something isn't going to be quote-unquote luxury coming out of this. There is a wood product that has been produced 
And I, I guess it also depends on what the makers have on hand, right? Like let's say you're located closer to Asia, then it's probably easier for you to produce like an affordable small product. It's not even exciting to me in terms of like, oh, I can acquire these small projects. I just think it's very healthy to encourage people to make small things. Like not everything has to be this elaborate lifetime passion. So it's more like, hey, let's get this out the door and let's just test it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also just the idea yeah. that I think we've talked about this before. Quite a, quite a few other artists you know, subscribe to this idea or you should just make as many things as possible, you know, make a thing a day or a thing a week. And that the likelihood of you producing something you really like is greater. Cause it's like, if you make just one big thing a year, if that big thing fails, if you're not happy with it, then that's it, right? Like that's the lost year. But let's say you make 12 things in a year, then your chances of having something you're genuinely happy with is much higher. It's just like a, the math of it, right? It makes sense. Do you see any downfalls to this type of approach? Or is it all, you know, the simplicity of it, the ability for you to just push forward with it without really worrying about all the other sort of quote unquote paralyzing factors makes it? I honestly it- don't see a downside because I feel like if you do small projects, there's always the possibility of scaling it up when it, if, if something catches, right? But if you do a really big project, it's harder to scale back down and find like the small thing within it that is successful. The same for the things that we attempt as Macon. If, if we don't get bogged down by, oh, we, like let's say we wanted to do a retail store, right? If you launch straight into, oh, we want to do a, like a brick and mortar retail store, that seems like 10 steps too fast, right? Like what are the iterations that can get us there? I think it's it, it, interesting because I think what I find most fascinating is like there's those rules that kind of keep you in check, mm. right? And the rules themselves force you to be incredibly focused on a certain set of parameters, right? And if these don't, if these parameters don't kind of come through, then like, you know, it doesn't fall within this quick starter type approach. Yeah. Some of the products I look at, like the simplicity of them is, is really cool. It's just like, you know, maybe I can just explain some of the projects that came out. It's like a small dog eared shelf is what they call it. So it's a shelf with a little kind of curl on the corner that allows you to hang something, right? It's like a interesting sort of uh, hook where you have two things. You have like, it's kind of like a rosebud in a way where the outside and the inside both represent a different hook so you can double up. Yeah. It's so simple. Yeah. And I I think this is a good sort of way of also getting consumers familiar and comfortable with the idea of, how do I put this? It's like the idea of, supporting small things. Yeah. And I, and it's not that people don't. I think that in many ways, having smaller opportunities to support creators is just like kind of both conditioning them a certain way, but also creating a little bit of like sustainability and, and like an on-ramp in a way. I also- Because th- it hopefully gives you confidence. It'll allow you to work on bigger projects. I also think it's just smart expectation management because- you know, we've heard stories of Kickstarter projects that go horribly wrong because they overpromise, yeah, right? Fall. Like it's going to be this 
revolutionary thing that you've never seen before. And then people promise lots of money and then it turns out not being that way, right? So it's trying to get us back to a point where the creator and the consumer can agree on like what we want and what we're going to get. Yeah. You mentioned that you think that big projects can be paralyzing. Yeah. Do you think there's anything about something like this that could give people the confidence to pursue bigger projects? Because in reality, some projects that have bigger problems to solve might just take more time. True. True. Obviously, not every problem can be solved within quick starter parameters. Hmm. I think if you do enough small projects, you'll get the confidence of completion. Like I've been able to finish things and I brought these things out into the world. Like whether that's a product or a story, illustration, zine. If you're stuck in a big project and you never make progress on it, that's how, that's how it gets paralyzing because you'll feel like I'm never gonna reach the end of this. I'm never going to be able to bring something alive. I think that's a good sort of like stepping stone approach to it. That's actually one thing I really like about producing stories for making because when you have a deadline for it going live, that's it. It's done. <laughs> you, you have a thing that's up and you don't have to work on it anymore. VS, like in my own freelance work where I'm working on websites for months, right? Like easily half a year each one. That's, it, it just takes a lot. To, to be continually excited about something that takes that long. Do you think that any of the rules are that are presented are maybe a little bit too strict? Some of them I didn't really understand, but I'm, I guess I'm not in the Kickstarter world. I thought the no paid ads on social media is an interesting parameter. Also the shoot the video in one day is very Kickstarter specific. Yeah, like your yeah. video can't be too polished. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I think the, the parameters are, are more than more than fine. I think the parameters, if you wanted to apply them to whatever a, you do as um, an independent creative, are time related. Like to just give yourself mm -hmm. a strict time parameter and maybe financial as well. Like let's say you wanted to print greeting cards, you know, it'd be yeah. easier if you're like, I'm not going to spend over 500 US or something. Good place to wrap things up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. If you're interested in learning more about Macon, plus reading and listening to our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, head over to Macon.com, M-A-E-K-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can really do us a big favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this episode with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>